Welcome to the LBCF podcast. Our vision is to learn to live and love like Jesus, where we live, work, and play. To find out more about our community, you can visit us at lbcf.org. We hope you are encouraged and challenged by this teaching from our community. All right, good morning, LBCF. This week in our New Testament reading plan, we're in Ephesians chapters one through three. And usually as teachers, we pick a small section within that range and and share kind of a homily from it. But I'm actually gonna teach from all three chapters, including chapter three, that's the scripture that Barb just read. And it's dense, but it's very fitting for our time. So I'm gonna jump right in. If you miss anything, you can always come back to the recording. Um, so here we go. So the context for this letter of Ephesians is that Paul is in prison for insisting that multiculturalism is essential and core to the gospel. You heard that right. Now, this is personal to the Ephesians that he's writing to from jail because of Trophimus, a Gentile, one of their own from Ephesus, who landed Paul in jail just for being with him in Jerusalem. This is this account is in Acts 21 through 22. Some of you might remember Ryan Longnecker and I co-taught this uh, last year with the riot, the mob, and all of that. It's a, it's a great story, so I'll go back and read it. So the point of this entire letter, all of Ephesians, is found in chapter 1, verse 10. And this is the plan. At the right time, he will bring everything together under the authority of Christ, everything in heaven and on earth. So everything Paul writes in this letter is supporting this meta-narrative that God has planned for all time. What he has planned is to bring all things together in Christ, the things in heaven and along with the things on earth. So this is the ultimate purpose and plan of all God has done and is doing, bringing all things together in Christ. So when we read Ephesians and we let Ephesians read our lives and read us, we can ask the question, what does this have to do with God bringing all things together in Christ? So again, our key to the whole book of Ephesians is, what does this have to do with God bringing all things together in Christ? So as I said this morning, we're looking specifically at chapters one through three. So Paul is retelling the story of the gospel now that the mystery of the Gentile believers has been made plain. In Acts 10, we see the account that the gift of the Holy Spirit has been poured out even on the Gentiles. So he's retelling, going back to the beginning, because there's a heresy that is threatening the early, the early church that actually landed Paul in jail, what I call the gospel of assimilation versus the gospel of new creation. So this, this part of the letter is, is kind of like at the end of Scooby-Doo when Velma goes back and explains how it was a janitor. and all along and it seems so obvious, but somehow, you know, we still miss it. So that's what Paul is doing with the gospel and the role of the Gentiles. And there's a spiciness to his retelling, similar to the spiciness of Hamilton, which is having a resurgence of popularity since it came out on Disney Plus and we can all have front row seats for $6.99 instead of the hundreds of dollars that I was paying to take my husband to see for his birthday in on Broadway the day COVID shut down the world. So we enjoyed it in Umber Jam and it was great. Anyways, the 
spiciness and the compellingness of Hamilton comes back to the thesis of Hamilton. When Manuel Miranda explains the thesis of Hamilton is the story of America then told by America now. And people of color are the future. They are the present and they are the future, end quote. So part of what's so compelling about Hamilton's retelling of history is that it affords all viewers, especially people of color, the chance to see themselves in the foundation and formation of their country. It gives people of color specifically a chance to see themselves having place in the very fabric and ideals of their country that the founding fathers did not afford them. It says people of color, you can own this story of throwing off unfair rule and oppression of live free or die you now get to write this part of American history, of America, the great unfinished symphony. And Paul retells the story of the gospel with this the, the same kind of sauciness and, and compellingness because God's plan for humanity is being confronted and challenged by a, a heresy that is oppressing and distorting the early church. Again, what I'm calling the gospel of assimilation versus the gospel of new creation. And if we listen carefully enough, we can hear its echoes in our own churches today, in our church today. So the gospel of assimilation goes something like this. Faith in Jesus means becoming the ultimate Jew. All other cultures and ethnicities are welcome to join the party if they assimilate and become like the founding culture. Ultimately, the entrance to the party has to do with cultural conformity, which is something that could be earned. And Paul is arguing the gospel of new creation, that faith in Jesus means being an entirely new humanity, where toxic cultural superiority and toxic nationalism gives way to a new humanity, complete with the beauty of culture, what scripture calls the glory of the nations. So Paul explains that Jesus has created something new, a new way of being human, of being family together. Now to many Jews, this sounded like spiritual affirmative action or forced integration, and they are not having it. So they riot, they destroy property, Paul ends up in jail. So now Paul's job, his relationship with, with these people in Ephesus is as an apostle. So his job is to give this community the seeds of faith that through the gifts of the Holy Spirit, they cultivate and grow with their lives, where they live, work, and play. So naturally, if things have you know, gone astray, he takes us back to the very beginning when God created humanity in his image, the royal task to cultivate the earth as representatives of God's love and goodness. This goes badly. God then chooses Israel to bless all nations and return to the royal task of cultivating the earth as representatives of God's love and goodness. This also goes badly. So ultimately, God comes himself and does what humanity and Israel could not do and creates a new multi-ethnic family, which Paul explains was God's plan all along, the mystery revealed. So he sums this up in uh, chapter 3, verse 6, and says plainly, this is God's plan. Both Gentiles and Jews who believe the good news share equally in the riches inherited by God's children. Both are part of the same body and both enjoy the promise of blessings because they belong to Christ Jesus. Now, 
that doesn't seem too problematic as a future or other world reality. It becomes problematic when it comes to ideals of who's in charge in the church now and who is setting standards of behavior or belonging directly or indirectly. And quite practically, if it means you have to cut off the foreskin of your penis and you're a grown man, you're up for revisiting the foundations of scripture and this is good news for you. So what Paul has summarized in, in verse six uh, is he's unpacked earlier in chapter two, verses 11 through 18. So it says, don't forget that you Gentiles used to be outsiders. You were called uncircumcised heathens by the Jews who were proud of their circumcision, even though it affected only their bodies and not their hearts. Oh, in those days, you were living apart from Christ. You were excluded from citizenship among the people of Israel, and you did not know the covenant promises God had made to them. You lived in this world without God and without hope, but now you have been united with Christ. Once you were far away from God, but now you've been brought near to him through the blood of Christ. For Christ himself has brought peace to us. He united Jews and Gentiles into one people when in his own body on the cross, he broke down the wall of hostility that separated us. He did this by ending the system of law with his commandments and regulations. He made peace between Jews and Gentiles by creating in himself one new people from the two groups. Together as one body, Christ reconciled both groups to God by means of his death on the cross, and our hostility toward each other was put to death. And he brought this good news of peace to you Gentiles who are far away from him and peace to the Jews who were near. Now, all of us can come to the Father through the same Holy Spirit because of what Christ has done for us. Done, totally right. So Paul is unpacking the gospel from the beginning to his day, which is a lot, but there's basically three parts of the story. Part one, Genesis one. God, who is love, can't help but create life out of that love. So this triune God creates humanity in his image to multiply, to subdue the earth and rule over the birds and the fish and the living creatures. So being made in God's image means made in the image of God, who is a love community. Three and one of equality. There's no hierarchy. The father is not over the son, is not subject to the Holy Spirit, etc. So man and woman are made with equal, in God's image, with equal value, power, status, and given a royal task together. And the term rule, in this case, means to cultivate the potential of creation based in their image of God, like as God would, with love and goodness, mercy, justice, and humility. That was the task. And then there's a spiritual Big Bang, a.k.a. the fall. So humanity breaks from this royal task in three devastating ways. One, exchanging trust in God for trust in self. Two, hostility toward one another. And three, strife or toil with creation. So this goes badly, and humanity is splintered in different directions to build their own kingdoms and establish their own kings. So part two, God chooses, <coughs> God chooses one of these 
splintered pieces of humanity, Abram, and says, I'm going to make you into a unique nation, Israel. And through you, I'm going to bless the other nations. Through you will come salvation, redemption, healing. And he gives them the Torah to codify them as a unique nation and remember how to again represent God's love and goodness. This also goes badly. Israel doesn't cultivate creation as God would. Actually, Israel uses the law code to cultivate a toxic cultural and national pride, a sense of being superior over everyone else on earth. And so then comes the third part of the story. The third part is like a big bang reversal, a big crunch, which is scientifically a thing. This time, God comes himself. Jesus, the very image of God, comes not to, you know, crack heads, crack down on us for messing up, but he comes as the ultimate do-over. He comes to show us, to walk alongside us and show us how it's done, to demonstrate and fulfill what humanity and Israel didn't and couldn't do. So Jesus comes not as the ultimate Jew, although he was a Jewish Messiah, but more accurately and significantly as the ultimate human. So he confronts this hostility, as Paul says in in chapter 2, verse 14, between humanity and makes the two groups, Israel and everyone else who's not Israel, Gentiles, into one. And this is not a one that is sameness, like a melted humanity. It's a oneness that is like the very nature of God. Three in one, diverse, three at one. So Paul is explaining and insisting that God's purpose was always to make one new multi-ethnic family, a diverse new humanity of every tongue, tribe, and nation that is hospitable for all and inviting of all who accept his offer to be adopted into his family. So what Jesus does on a cross is he absorbs the toxic cultural and national superiority and creates something new, a new humanity full of the beauty and goodness of every tribe, tongue, and nation. What Revelation describes as the glory of the nation that endures forever through eternity. Revelation 21, 26 says, and the nations will bring their glory and honor into the city. The new Jerusalem is referencing the kingdom of heaven on earth. So there's some key elements to to this story, right? But here's the kicker. Who does Paul say this is for? Is this just some cosmic game or cosmic novel that God's making for fun? No, remember, God is love and can't help but create life out of that love. So ultimately, in verses 10 through 11, Paul tells us God's purpose in all of this was to use the church to display his wisdom in its rich variety to all the unseen rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was his eternal plan, which he carried out through Christ Jesus, our Lord. So God is demonstrating 
to the powers and principalities of darkness that govern this world, that his love knows no bounds. It is undefeatable, indestructible, and that this multicultural new humanity, this new family, the body of Christ, is the incarnation of his victory over evil. So incidentally, looking ahead a little bit to chapter four, this is why the Holy Spirit gifts the diverse body with gifts that equip the church. We never see spiritual gifts of apostle, prophet, evangelist, shepherd, and teacher distributed only to the Jews or only to any one majority culture. Even though if we look at our churches today, it, it would be easy to conclude otherwise. So we can read this and agree it makes sense. We agree with this, but then we look at our churches and we say, hmm, something doesn't add up. We look at LBCS. Our city is more diverse than our church. And especially as we are in the civil rights movement of our time, the church is rightfully facing a faith crisis and asking, how did we get to where we are today? And and how did we miss it? And why and how when Paul says this is the purpose and plan of God for humanity, has this not been the driving force of our ecclesia, of our being the church? And then even further, what has been the driving force of being the church, of being the ecclesia, the call that one? So I want to focus on this last question for a bit. What has been the driving force of our ecclesia, of our, of our church? So like Paul, I think we need to go back to our, our gospel seeds or the version that we have allowed to be the seed of our theology, ecclesiology, and missiology. Theology meaning how we think about God, ecclesiology, our form and function as the church, and our missiology, how we communicate and relate God to others. So if we compare Paul's gospel, the big G gospel, with the gospel that many of us have been taught directly or indirectly, we find some core elements missing. So if you're like me, you've heard or even communicated that the gospel is something like this. God loves you, has a wonderful plan for your life, but you're sinful, so that can't happen. But Jesus died for your sins, so you could have a personal relationship with Jesus, which is eternal love. Well, that has elements of truth. It is not the full gospel. It's not the whole plan and purpose of God, as Paul has explained. What I would say is the big G gospel. So it would be like if you asked me my name and I said, Casey, and you said, is that it? I said, that's all you need to know. Most important part. Again, again, you keep asking, so what's your name again? And I said, that's Stacy. And you're like, that's all. Yeah, Stacy's good. But then you keep seeing this redheaded, strapping man around me a lot and these two super cute kids. If you ask again and again and again, what's your name? And and I just keep saying, JC, and you say there's nothing else in sleep. That's the most consistent part. That's the m- most essential part. Just simpler, just call me JC. At a point, I would be making a comment about the truth that my full name is JC Renee Anderson. And Anderson represents that I'm married and over time became a 
a mom and I'm a wife and a mother. So you would be, well, JC is true. It's not the full version of, of who I am. So you would be right to be suspicious if I neglected to tell you what my full name was or considered my full name as unessential. So if we go back to the gospel, the big G gospel, as Paul explains it, that he's in jail for, so what's missing? <clears throat> so again, back in verses six and seven, Paul lays it out. And this is God's plan. Both Gentiles and Jews who believe the good news share equally in the riches inherited by God's children. Both are part of the same body and both enjoy the promise of blessings because they belong to Christ Jesus. By God's grace and mighty power, I have been given the privilege of serving him by spreading this good news. The gospel is not just a plan for individual salvation. Nowhere in the New Testament does it say that the gospel is Jesus died so you could have a personal relationship with God. Even when Jesus defines eternal life in his prayer in John 17, he says, now this is eternal life that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. They. There was always a reference to the collective. The purpose and plan was always directed to a diverse humanity. And it is how God envisioned his church, his body, because in our diversity, we're made in God's image. No one culture reflects God's image more than another. And all are necessary to display, as Paul writes, God's wisdom in its rich variety to all the unseen rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Because God is playing a much bigger game than we have let ourselves be defined by. Paul brings us back to this truth. So why is this important? Because when we miss this as essential to the gospel, when we decide multiculturalism is, is not essential to the gospel, and we treat it like an issue, a sermon series, a disputable matter, a small group topic, we are outside of God's very purpose and plan for humanity, his new creation, his holy family. We are outside of what God is doing, bringing everything together under the authority of Christ, everything in heaven and on earth. If we're outside of that, at the least, we're wasting time. And at the most, we are aligned with darkness that would love to do nothing more than distract and divert and roll us away from the life impulse and direction of God and his cultivation of the kingdom of heaven on earth, which is not inconsequential. It's dangerous and it creates damage. And we're seeing the effects of a lot of that in our society today. <clears throat> I'm feeling the effects of that personally. Me, as your brown female pastor. Um, I have so many experiences of getting marginalized, my voice being kind of muted, my words being minimized, my leadership being kind of pushed out and tokenized. And then I become one of the few who even hear, let alone understand 
the moans and groans of those who exist in the shadows of the dominant culture. And when we treat multiculturalism as optional or non-essential, we allow one culture to be the dominant voice in our pulpit as a dominant influence in the commentaries we read and theologians and authors and podcasts we listen to and the standards for what good preaching, leadership, budgeting, beauty, entertainment, food, or jokes are. We engage in a self-soothing that keeps us away from real relationships that are different from us and all their challenges and beauty and gifts. And we engage in a cultural masturbation. Because I've been complicit in this. My faith crisis means I don't have, I'm, I'm missing the faith tradition roots under me that I need in this moment we're facing as a, as a country and as a church. What I need and what we all need right now is a deeper influence from the faith tradition born of enslaved people that's not defined by its value in the eyes of the state or by its wealth, its ability to own anything or anyone. We've dismissed this faith tradition as liberation theology or just culturally irrelevant and unnecessary. And we don't even know what we've missed out on, but we know we're at right now in this moment, we need it. And this is not an intellectual topic to tickle our brains. This is our actual life. This is my actual life. It's your actual life. Long before and long after any sermon series or long before and after it's fashionable and it's damaging. I've talked with other folks in our community and in other communities. There's a lot of pain. There's a lot of hurt. And for me personally, a couple weeks ago, Started just having like flashbacks of all these different um, experiences of racial distress that I've had in ministry. I've been in ministry full time for 25 years, and I've worked through a lot. and And there was a lot that was unresolved that was starting to surface. So um, I've taken some extended time to pursue some some counseling. Thank you for those of you who've been praying. Um, yeah, and some some support in, in this specific. Uh, area that that I need because what happens is I've gotten lost. I've more specifically lost my prophetic imagination, like being able to really imagine what this big G gospel looks like. And and in these moments when when we look around us and say, uh, we're we're not where we need to be. What we need is courageous imagination. And and I'm I'm finding I'm just kind of lost and I've lost that. So um, I'm trusting and, and hoping in, in Jesus um, and, and getting some outside support to pursue that. But it's because there's been so much cost, so much cost. So what if we didn't try to fast track to solutions? What if we pushed back on the false prophets that say, peace, when there is no peace. But we have the courage to listen slowly to our own hearts, to one another, to lament, and to let our stories till the soil of our prophetic imagination of what could be. 
well as LBCF, as a church. Uh, we want to create space to learn to live and love like Jesus, who was a story sage. We want to practice learning our own stories, listening better to others' stories, and better telling our stories and the stories of others. We believe this is a powerful framework for having the kind of conversations that we need to have as a diverse, multi-ethnic, new creation, new humanity, new family. So in a few weeks, we will be launching some virtual cadres, um, small groups based on the storytelling framework of To Be Told by Dan Allender and laced with some framework for identifying culture and its values. So before we close, I want to give us some time to consider what has been shared. And I'm going to lead you through a two-minute exercise for reflection. So right where you are, pick a point across the room to fix your gaze on. And as you stare at that point, think about what you've heard this morning. What has landed? What is annoying? Go ahead and do that right now. Now I'm going to ask you to move your body following your breath. So breathe in and then breathe out kind of movement. So breathe in and look over your left shoulder and even turn with your hips as you can. Breathe out, come back to center and look down. And lift back to center and look up. Back to center, look over your right shoulder with your hips, back to center. Now find your fixed points again across the room and consider again, what has landed? I encourage you to take note of what Jesus might be saying to you and how you will respond. And make this a point of prayer. So one way we get to respond together is to share in communion, a sacrament that affirms our unity in the ancient and global body of Christ. So get your communion elements. And, and hold them up as I share this blessing. Lord, we bless your provision of body and blood represented in these elements. May we receive them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. And on the night he was betrayed, he just took, Jesus took the bread and broke it, saying, this is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. The body of Christ broken for you. Take and eat. And then he took the cup, saying, this is my blood shed for you. Whenever you do this, do it in remembrance of me. The blood of Christ shed for you. Take and drink. And in closing, I offer this prayer of Paul from Ephesians, the Paul that Mary so beautifully unpacked for our kids. Let it wash over you this morning. This is why I kneel before the Father. Every ethnic group in heaven or on earth is recognized by him. I ask that he will strengthen you and your inner selves 
from the riches of his glory through the spirit. I ask that Christ will live in your heart through faith. As a result of having strong roots in love, I ask that you'll have the power to grasp love's width and length, height and depth, together with all believers. I ask that you'll know the love of Christ that is beyond knowledge, that you will be filled entirely with the fullness of God. Amen. We hope this teaching has encouraged and challenged you. We always have more resources available at our website, lbcf.org. And wherever you are and wherever you're listening, we pray you be filled with grace to learn to live in love like Jesus.